0: Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, acting editor.
1: And I'm Lucinda Rouse, senior multimedia reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. This week, we'll be speaking to Professor Kathy Farrow about the ins and outs of approaching and securing a high net worth donor on behalf of your organisation. And
0: later, we'll be hearing from the host of another podcast in the charity management space about why you might like to listen to it.
1: But first, the Sunday Times annual Rich List came out last month. At the very end of the 60-page magazine covering the rise and fall of the nation's wealthy is the Giving List, compiled in association with the Charities Aid Foundation. It calculates the proportion of total wealth donated or pledged to charity by people on the Rich List. It found that seven figures donated more than £100 million in the past year and 100 individuals and families giving a total of 3.4 billion pounds. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. So, Andy, you've been looking quite closely at this list. Who are the big names at the top?
0: Well, I mean, people will probably be familiar with Sir Chris Hone, who's top of the list, the hedge fund manager who funnels a lot of his giving, I think, through the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. He gave £750 million in his donations over the course of the year, which is estimated at something like 15% of his gross wealth. Other people who are up there include Steve Morgan, who runs his own charitable foundation. Sir Elton John is seventh on the list with donations of £31 million. Other people on the list include J.K. Rowling, who gives a lot of money through her Lumos charity that helps disadvantaged children. And even people like Gareth Bale, the footballer, who is 29th on the list, giving just under a million pounds to health. So there's quite a wide range of names.
1: Yeah. And just to emphasise that the people towards the top of that list, or indeed even on that list, are not necessarily representative of the people towards the top of the rich list itself.
0: Yeah, Chris Hone, he's 42nd on the overall rich list. So there's a lot of people who are above him who are maybe giving in different ways. We don't really know, but they're not mentioned on this giving list. You've also been looking at some of the figures, haven't you, Lucinda? What are some of the areas that people have been giving to?
1: Yes, so the usual suspects, really. Uh, So if we look at the top 10 people on this list, the cause areas that they are most likely to support are children and educational causes, then medical and health, and followed closely by environmental causes. But all of this aside, we thought that it would be useful to have a discussion about how in this time where budgets are being squeezed, demand for services going up and charities are generally having a really rough time, how can they land themselves a donor like this, perhaps somebody on one of the rich lists, how can they most effectively approach and engage them?
0: Well, should we bring in an expert then?
1: Very good idea. We're here to explore how charities can successfully approach and appeal to people like this to raise much-needed funds for their causes. With us in the studio is Kathy Farrow, Visiting Professor of Charity Funding at Bayes Business School. She's a funding expert and specialises in philanthropic giving. Over the course of her career, she's held positions including Research Director at the Charities Aid Foundation. Hello, Kathy. Hello, nice to be here. So, you are going to walk us through how to land a high value donor. But perhaps we should go back to basics to start with and ask what is a high value donor?
2: Well, I think that's the first challenging question that charities need to ask themselves when they're thinking about approaching high net worth or major donors. They need to deconstruct that because the strategy that they develop to target and engage those donors is going to depend on what level. They're actually aiming at. I noticed that in the recent Sunday Times Giving Index, there were just forty-two people who, in the country, who made gifts of over ten million. So you know they're rare as hen's teeth. Cancer Research UK defines a major gift as ten thousand, but I know that some charities will be thinking below that, and some will be thinking above it. So that's the starting point. Think about what is for you a major donor.
1: There's also a difference, isn't there, between wealth and donation size and what even constitutes wealth in terms of how much money people have disposable to give to charitable causes. Yes.
2: Well, what I discovered recently in some research is that even the government doesn't really have a handle on all the wealth that's in the country and, and who's got it. So the point really is that most of our research has looked at The relationship between income and giving, but we haven't looked at the relationship between wealth and giving. In fact, I'm doing some research just now, which aims to get a much better handle on that. But many people will be giving from wealth, not from income.
0: It's interesting that you make the point of a different size donation will be categorised differently according to the size of charity. Obviously, for Cancer Research UK, £10,000 might be a relatively small amount. Obviously, for many small charities, £10,000 would probably be greater than they'd raise in a whole year. (laughs) So it is an interesting question. But where do charities go about kind of finding these people? Where are they?
2: Well, of course, if I knew exactly, I wouldn't be doing this job. (laughs) 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 But um, it's challenging. And sometimes there are rare exceptions where a charity is lucky because they just do something that a particular donor has an interest in and a gift might land out of the blue. But that isn't the general rule. We know that wealth is concentrated in the southeast. We know that it's largely concentrated in male hands and it's older men. So, demographically, we've got a handle on where wealth is. Though, of course, families and partners have a, a big role in giving. But on the whole, the way to reach major donors is really through networks. And charities have to think firstly about well, how might they access? networks that might lead them ultimately to attracting the attention of someone who might give in their field.
0: And that personal connection, I think, is key in a lot of big gifts, isn't it? I mean, I'm assuming that research and checking the the connections that wealthier people have is key in trying to attract the interest of a major donor if they've got some sort of connection to your charity.
2: That's right. So so doing a lot of research on what donors' interests might be, where they are, where they work, who their, their contacts might be, all of that's going to be helpful in trying to find networks. That means that Major donor fundraising will have to start probably at the top of the organisation through the CEOs, through the trustees who might have good connections and potentially could develop better connections or bringing in trustees who might help you develop connections.
1: And do you have any recommendations for how charities can most effectively make use of their trustees? Because obviously it can be a little bit awkward at times. I can imagine trying to encourage people to open up their networks. It needs to be very well prepared and the approach needs to be done with the right tone. Absolutely.
2: And I mean, obviously, friendships and personal contacts are going to be very important. And charities need to handle all that, as you said, very sensitively local links appear to be quite important when you're looking at how smaller charities in particular might attract big donations a donor who is interested in their area or who has a connection with their area is very important and a good example here is bill Holroyd, who supported the bolton lads and girls club the story is that he was approached by a connection he had he'd worked in the northwest And it came at a time of his life when he was looking for something new, something different to do. And he took on the challenge of chairing and financially supporting that club. And he has since then supported other small youth Mm organisations.
1: So making sure that there is an obvious connection between the potential donor and the cause that they're being asked to support is seems like a fairly obvious one. Do you have any other advice on ways that organisations can prepare the ground and make sure that they are providing the right information to potential donors in order to strengthen their case? for?
2: Yes, yeah, so they've support. got the pack ready when the donor comes along. Exactly. Yes. Well,
1: obviously, they have to be able to pass all the due
2: diligence tests, demonstrate good governance, good financial management, and, of course, demonstrate a good track record of service delivery. And if they have it, evidence of making an impact, which can be quite hard to do, but quite small pieces of evidence can help. And for some donors, demonstrating other qualities is going to be important. For example, are they innovative? Do they have a vision? Are they going anywhere? I think also demonstrating that you work effectively in partnerships and can bring in other people who can extend your impact and effectiveness. All those things will be important.
1: So it sounds like it's almost a tick box exercise in terms of the due diligence that they need to provide. Are there any resources out there that perhaps smaller charities who have not yet made a big approach to a high net worth individual could find information on you know, what it is that they need to provide and the best way of presenting mm. it.
2: It sounds like a business opportunity. Well, I <laughs> can't actually think of one, but the Charity Commission has loads of guidance on how to become a well-governed charity and how to do good financial management. And then you've got your annual report. I mean, your you might say your calling card or your passport is going to be a nicely presented annual report. It doesn't have to be expensively produced, but it has to be accessible and readable and contain All the key information. I mean, in the work I've done, you know, looking at charity finances, I've read thousands of annual reports and they're amazingly different. Mm. And some have instant appeal and draw you in, and others are really hard work, like (laughs) eating a bowl of cold porridge, you know. You have to dig to find the good bits. (laughs) Mm. And in terms
0: of what charities, maybe could offer in return to a big donor. I mean, I wonder if you can just talk talk a little bit about how that might work and how charities can look to sort of broaden their appeal Mm. to uh, major donors.
2: I I was thinking about this and, and it occurred to me that, you know, last week's highly successful reopening of the National Portrait Gallery after being closed for, I think, three years for a major capital development is a very good demonstration of how an organisation drew in donors and supporters to help raise funds and then rewarded them highly with quite, well, first of all, previews and opening events where they had the opportunity to meet other exciting people and extra publicity, photographs, all of that. So, and also... To see the exhibitions and see and just being first to be there is quite exciting in itself. So that is, you know, obviously a very high profile example of Mm -hmm. how you can reward donors. But it clearly drew in a lot of people and was and was very successful. So it's a model. Charities at least have to look at what they might offer or what partners they could bring in who help them offer something.
0: So some of it could be to do with networking. I'm guessing for for most charities, they don't have access to millions of pounds worth of exclusive paintings on their doorstep that they could (laughs) offer people access to.
2: They can have experiences of all kinds, meeting donors, talking to them, visiting projects Or if they've got a partner with nice premises and a posh room using that. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which they could reach out and offer donors something special. I mean, donors will only give if they see something special. So if you can share that something special with them, Mm. that's what the donors will be looking for.
1: And what about this notion that some donors will consider the transfer of financial sums to charities as an investment?
2: Yes. I mean, making a big gift is very, very different from making a small gift. And I I sometimes feel the charity sector hasn't totally got its head around that. When you make a small gift, you're sharing the risk with lots of other donors who will be making small gifts. But for a major donor making a big gift, you know, he's worked very hard to earn his money. He invests carefully. So for a major donor, however passionate they are or driven about the cause, It's going to be an investment in the future and they'll want to know what the return is going to be. Some are actually interested in social investment where they'll get a financial return as well as a social return. For many, it's going to be about good social returns, but they will be thinking of investing in the future. And it's notable how many of our bigger donors do invest in forward looking activities like, for example, facilities which help charities to offer more or basically universities and research.
1: And what about the notion of risk, presumably, that that's a big consideration that they would make? Why is it important for charities to understand the mindset of risk from a high net worth donor's perspective? And how can charities make sure that their bid or their request is aligned with that concept of risk?
2: I mean that's a really good question so I think one of the things major donor and a charity will have to establish is how far they share a risk appetite and some will clearly have a much higher risk appetite than others and so charities willing to take a higher risk will appeal to donors with a higher risk appetite and obviously the converse is true. So establishing how you feel around risk will be a very important point but also Donors will expect to see that charities understand about risk mitigation, that they've taken reasonable steps to mitigate risks. And there's a lot of advice around all of this, again, in the Charity Commission's work, and they do expect to see charities with risk strategies and mitigation measures. They, they will expect to see some of that in their annual reports.
0: And to what extent do you think that charities have reasonable expectations when it comes to major donors? Is it because it might be easy to see these people just as kind of cash cows, for want of a better phrase. Do most charities approach them in the right way and thank them in the in the appropriate manner when they do find them?
2: Well, if I can be honest, I think a lot of charities don't approach major donors in the right way. And I think that that creates barriers. I think a lot of charities think the main thing they need to do in a room if there's a major donor is shout their charity's name, make a little speech, which spends a lot of time talking about their charity. And that leads major donors to protect themselves and not work directly with charities. So I think this whole issue is actually a very big one for the future development of fundraising within the charity sector.
0: Because it's notable that a number of major donors just have their own personal foundations that they use for their donations, which sort of indicates that either A, they want to do it themselves, and B, to a certain extent, they maybe don't trust the other charities. To do the work for them is that that's right
2: yes yes they feel they need a vehicle to do it properly and effectively and not get over solicited in unhelpful ways and that's why many work with intermediaries it could be a family office it could be wealth advisors it could be their solicitor or accountants and all these people will form part of the network that charities might be able to access when they start thinking about how they build up trusted networks And there is a lot of evidence to show that major donors do work through networks when they're trying to find a charity to give to. They work through trusted friends, through their advisors, through colleagues that work and so on. And also they work with people that they they want to have a relationship with so charitable giving can help them form important relationships. And so I think from that point of view, it's very important that a charity working in a, f- a specific field, say, for example, the environment, is able to show to a potential donor. Chris Hohn, for example, has moved heavily into environmental issues and has been supporting Extinction Rebellion. So a charity who's got something special to bring to the field of environment needs to work out how they can can manoeuvre their way into and around existing networks around environmental issues. But the same applies to other areas of charitable activity.
0: Mm. So what would be your kind of top tips then in terms of where charities should start? If they're just thinking, well, I'm sure no charity would say they don't want a major donor. Well, maybe some would if they (laughs) felt there were too many strings attached. But where should they start?
2: I think they have to start by being very clear what they have to offer. and then doing research around who in the world of potential wealthy donors might have an interest there and then start looking at some of the pathways. But of course, giving can happen in very strange ways. And I wanted to mention the example of John Pierce, who was a horse racing ex-professional. And he basically set up his foundation to support causes within the world of horse racing, But under the pressure of the COVID pandemic, he wanted to give to social welfare and to help people who are suffering from the pandemic and gave a million pounds to a local hospice in Norfolk. Mm. So it's working out what's going to be a key trigger. And it might not always be obvious.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've touched in the past 15, 20 minutes on very different motivations behind people's donations from specific cause area to links within their local community, perhaps where they've come from before they became rich and possibly famous, more cynical look might say, well, it's it's really in their benefit because they get tax breaks. How can charities make the most of that?
2: Well, obviously, Charities need to understand what the tax breaks are and what charitable giving might offer. But I think, quite honestly, when you're dealing with wealthy donors, the tax issues are quite complicated and ultimately won't be handled by the charity. They'll be handled by a financial advisor who should be able to give very good advice for that particular donor on which funds to take his money from and when and that kind of thing to maximise the tax benefit. In the States, they have a whole... A whole profession of people who provide both, well, planned giving advice, which encompasses very often a, per, a wealthy person's financial management as well as their charitable giving. We haven't done, we haven't developed that in mm. the UK. And that's where I think the big gap is between high volume, low value fundraising and this, what we're talking about today, this very targeted, high net worth philanthropy.
1: But somehow getting into the network of, potential philanthropists and existing philanthropists accountants is perhaps quite a smart move by Mm. voluntary organisations.
2: And you can see that it might be easier to mobilise sometimes at a local level because there you will have links with the local businesses and the banks and so on. You've got a starting point. An alternative simply to looking at a single donor or a wealthy man is to explore whether there are any giving circles in your area there are a number of giving circles up and down the country and this is where donors who've got less money pool their resources but they also pool information on who to give to and one example of a small charity attracting money from a donor circle is sister system which got 130,000 from impact 100 which is a, a group of donors who all give £1,000 or over and then decide together where the money's going. So that is often seen as a more democratic and accountable way of bringing in different kinds of donors. So
0: it's not just connecting with individuals there, it's more about connecting right. with yes. groups that might be in your communities. That's yes. really helps. And for
2: donors, there's a, obviously a lot of return and fun in being part of, yeah. a, of a group. Sounds
1: great. Yeah. So
2: giving circles are quite a good
1: idea. Are there many? giving circles in this country.
2: Oh there has been research but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I mean we're probably looking at somewhere between 100 and 200 but I couldn't say exactly.
1: Do you know if they are geographically?
2: Yes they te- they're often associated with the local community foundations.
1: How about looking from the charity side? It sounds like it could be an awful lot of work courting a high net worth potential donor what's your view on how much charities themselves are actually willing or able to invest in such high value fundraising
2: well many charities don't have a lot of money to invest in fundraising of course the rewards are going to be very high if you do attract a major donor but I think starting with what you've got is probably a good idea your ceo or your existing trustees or your supporter network starting there looking at who you've got and um working from that and then hopefully building up
1: well kathy farrow visiting professor at bay's business school thank you very much for joining us
2: thank you my pleasure
1: We hope you enjoyed our discussion with Kathy. And just before we finish, we'd like to draw your attention to another podcast covering the voluntary sector. It's called Charity Impact. And joining us to tell us about it is Alex Blake, the founder of Keda Consulting, who is behind it. Hi, Alex.
3: Hi, Lizinda. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the Third Sector podcast as well. So it's nice to actually be on here as well.
1: Oh, great. Well, you're saying all the right things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Just in a nutshell, tell us about Charity Impact.
3: Yeah, sure. So the podcast is for charity leaders and professionals working in the sector, much like yours. And the aim really is to help them in their work to increase their charity's income and impact. So we try and do that by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. And most of our episodes are either with a charity CEO, sharing their insights and learning from their experience, or with an expert in a specific topic. So we've had people on talking about digital capabilities, about philanthropy and funding, recruitment and retention, anti-racism. So a quite broad sort of range of topics, all sort of relating back to those objectives around increasing income and impact. And we we try and get a, a nice diverse range of guests. So a mix of people that might be sort of familiar names in the field but also people whose voices have been less heard and and people that are more sort of emerging in the space as well.
1: Sounds great and you've been going for almost a year now you must be building a nice healthy library of past episodes for people to listen back to but perhaps could you tell us about one particular issue that you've been covering recently?
3: Yeah we're getting there we're getting there Uh, But we've had loads of great guests on. I know you've been speaking to Cathy about relationships with philanthropists today. So I thought I'd point out um, we spoke to Ben Lindsay, a charity CEO and founder recently, and spent a lot of time talking about fundraising and brand building. And there are some really good points in there about building relationships, both with high net worth individuals and with corporates and really looking at making those partnerships work for both sides and having that sort of perspective as a young and small but growing charity but also i think a lot of the ideas ben spoke about really apply to fundraising in much larger organizations as well so i definitely recommend that one
1: well sounds great alex blake from the charity impact podcast thanks a lot for joining us
3: thanks lucinda
1: that's it for this week Next week, we will be talking about how charities can successfully brand themselves in order to raise their perception to members of the public.
0: Don't forget to give us a rating or leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. Lucinda, why should people do this?
1: Well, aside from helping us, and if you enjoy listening to us week in, week out, then we would greatly appreciate it. But also, you would be helping out other charity management professionals who are looking to find and learn from our expert guests
0: great well don't forget to do that thanks very much to our guest professor kathy farrow and many thanks to our studio producer nav pal join us again next week